0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Ah. Father, your, your love is overwhelming. It feels sometimes... like our hearts are so hard that we, we sing about it, we hear of it, but it doesn't penetrate. And then we have moments like today where something just flips. And for whatever reason, we see it. We see you. Jesus, I pray that wouldn't stop in this next bit of time. And I know we have all sorts of people in this room as we say, and it's, it's the type of community you formed, that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room here. So we know that you speak to us right where we are. But I pray in this next bit of time, our hearts would remain open and that Holy Spirit, your love, would be able to be communicated to each one of us today. Do the work that only you can do and thank you for your good gifts. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so we have been in this series that we've been calling The Way of Jesus, The Way of Jesus. Uh, In short, we've been examining habits and practices that we see uh, exhibited by this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Because we're we're sort of making the case that when we look at the story of Jesus of Nazareth, when we look at his life, we see an abundance, we see a power, uh, we see a vitality that we don't see elsewhere in other historical figures. We see him, it's manifested in him healing diseases. It's manifested in the way he teaches and people are astonished at it. We just see a a life that I definitely don't see in my own life. And so we're making the case, okay, how, where did that life come from? And he says himself, it came from his relationship with God. It came from his relationship with the Father. And so we spent the first part of this series examining Practices like solitude and prayer um, that, that sort of make the, the, the conduit, the, the avenue open between our own heart and God. But now, what we're doing as we're in this, in this season of Lent, which, if you don't know what Lent is, that's totally fine. Lent is a, is a season in the church's calendar we've been practicing for the last 2,000 years where for the 40 days leading up to Easter, leading up to the moment where Jesus dies, goes to death and is raised from the dead, it's sort of, it, it, it's, it corresponds with the 40 days uh, that Jesus was in the desert being tempted um, by the evil one. And it's our way of sort of going without certain things in our lives and in our hearts, um, so as to join him in this process of, of walking to the cross together. And so what we wanted to do in these last Sundays leading up to the Jamboree, leading up to Easter, um, is examine four core impulses, right? We sort of built the case of these practices that Jesus has, but now we wanna examine four root impulses of the human heart and see how Jesus dealt with them. And those four root impulses, it's been, it's been posited that these four root impulses are at the core of every sort of um, destruction and separation and bad things. And, and they are comfort, the desire for comfort, the desire for control, the desire for approval, and the desire for power. And it kind of makes sense if you look at the various things that sort of wage for our hearts like money is a good one it's it's great for us in the west because we deal with that all the time often our desire to hoard money uh, doesn't really have to do with money itself but it has to do with the control that money allows us doesn't it when we when we don't have to worry about you know is is the money going to come in it sort of gives us a sense of control over our life so that's sort of the case we're making that the at the root of these things that um that mess with us. So these root of these things that allow us to, to separate ourselves from one another and from God are comfort, control, approval, and power. And Brian did an awesome job last week talking about comfort. And today what we're gonna talk about is the, the root impulse, the root idol of control, control. It's tough to define. I would say it just like this. The desire to be in control is the desire to be my own master. The desire to be the master of my own life, my own fate. And the modern Western world has some serious issues with this, can I get an amen? Yes, I definitely have issues with it, yeah. We have some serious issues. There's a phrase, you may have heard of it called illusions of control. It was coined by a Yale psychologist, Ellen Langer. And, and she she did a lot of different experiments and studies for us in the West. And here's what she found: these illusions of control. It's basically uh, an expectancy of a personal success probability, inappropriately higher than the objective probability would warrant. It's a lot of academic language. What she's saying: she's saying that you and I, we believe that we have more knowledge, greater power, uh, a, a deeper skill set greater freedom or involvement than is actually the case. (laughs) Uh, Basically, we think very highly of ourselves and we think that we got this under control. Just as an example, I remember a couple years back, I saw a documentary on uh, the education system in America and I couldn't find the exact one, I couldn't remember, but I remember this one fact. Um, If you look at like the, the different educational systems and countries throughout the world, America, we're kind of average, we rank 30th on most lists uh, of like the, the educational um, system and the type of students we produce. However, there is one list where we rank first by a wide margin, and that list is self-confidence. <laughs> so I imagine the, the reporters coming to me like, you rank 30th, and we're like, well, that's your opinion. So, you know, we got this. We got this under control, all right? <laughs> There's a really, really uh, interesting book, I've talked about it before, called Why Liberalism Failed. It's an academic book, FYI, written by Patrick Deneen. And he traces the roots of our Western uh, philosophy, our Western conviction toward liberalism. And just to be clear, when, when he says liberalism, he does not mean political liberals set over and against political conservatives. He means the entire premise that both uh, spawns liberals and conservatives. And what's that premise? It's basically this, the the root of our Western conviction is the pure, free, autonomous individual. That's what it means to be be free. That's what it means uh, to, to this whole American project is aimed at the pure, free, autonomous individual. The individual who is in control of their existence who is the master of their own fate. And he looks at three different foundations that I think are really fascinating. I just wanna examine one of them for our purposes today. One of the roots of how this developed, he said, was the scientific revolution. Interesting enough, the scientific revolution, which you find uh, in its, its incipient form in Sir Francis Bacon, which I don't know if you know this, Sir Francis Bacon is the, is the person who said, knowledge is power. Y'all have heard that phrase, knowledge is power. Anytime you're at a party, it's a great party trick. Someone says, the knowledge is power. Be like, ah, do you know who said that? (laughs) Sir Francis Bacon. And what happened in the scientific revolution is that humans no longer saw themselves as pieces of a larger cosmic puzzle. Instead, we began to see ourselves as controllers of the natural world, controllers of our environment. Interestingly, Sir Francis Bacon, he likens the natural world as a prisoner who under torture might be compelled to reveal her secrets. Isn't that a fascinating metaphor? So we saw ourselves no longer as part of of the cosmos, we saw ourselves able to um, torture the cosmos and reveal her secrets as controllers of the cosmos. And that sort of uh, developed into three main things, the control of the human nature, the control of self, the control of time, and the control of place. Prior to this, prior to like the 15 and 1600s, human nature was viewed as having tremendous appetites and instincts, just like the animals, right? So we, have, we feel greed, we have a desire for power, for comfort, for control, for sex, for eating, just like the animals. But the difference between humans and the animals is we can tell our instincts no. So we thought and think, I think. <laughs> we, don't have to live in accordance with our instincts. Just because um, we want to eat doesn't mean we have to. We can say no. And what we said prior to this was that if we tame our instincts through friendship with God, we become a full human being. But after the scientific revolution or during it, what happens is that the human as master of themselves was not a human who could control their appetites, but rather just pure appetite as such. Someone who never said no. So we became the master of ourselves by letting our appetites run free and have the final say. We also became the master of time. And the way we did this was by fracturing it. And that's a phrase by Alexis de Tocqueville, who writes in a brilliant work when he was a, he was a French aristocrat and he was in America in like the 1800s, and he was sort of writing his notes. And there's this really great section, and this is what he says about the American conception of time. It says, not only does democracy make men forget their ancestors, but also clouds their view of their descendants and isolates them from their contemporaries. Each man or woman is forever thrown back upon himself alone, and there is a danger that he may be shut up in the isolation of his own heart. Because again, this whole premise is about the pure, free, autonomous individual. So we become the master of time by ripping my share of it from all of you. I fracture it from the past, I fracture it from the future, and I tight fist my 70 years on this earth and no one can determine it but me. And then we become the masters of place by becoming placeless. Thomas Hobbes, who was the secretary of uh, Sir Francis Bacon, he viewed humans as coming up from the earth like mushrooms with no obligation to anyone else. Thomas Jefferson said that the most fundamental right, catch this, this is fascinating. The most fundamental right defining the free human is the right to leave the place of one's birth. So the fundamental right of your true autonomous freedom is voluntary homelessness. We become the master of place by uprooting ourselves. So what's the result of all this? Bringing it all together. Well, we're the masters of human nature, we're the richest country in the world, but we also have decimated the earth in the name of controlling it. We have everything we want, and yet loneliness has been declared a public health emergency. We're the masters of time, but stress and anxiety are at an all time high. And you see articles coming out in the major publications literally every week with titles such as why are young people pretending to love work and wealthy, successful and miserable that celebrates our obsession with hustle and grind culture and seeing who's more exhausted at the end of the day. We're masters of our own time and we're masters of our place. And we've created utterly homesick individuals who have no idea how to make and sustain real friendships anymore. I know I'm hitting close to home with many of us in this room because I'm definitely hitting close to home with me. So I bring all this up only to say, to start with you and I in the West, we have been bred to think that we are in control of our lives. We have been bred to think that I am the master of my own life and no one else has a say in that. And all I wanna ask at first is when we look around considering all this, Is it worth it? Are we doing a good job? The richest, but the most anxious about to destroy the earth. Yes, it's my time, but deeply lonely, deeply afraid. Are we doing a good job? And I wanna contend that in reality, this, all of this has been a furious attempt to forget the one most important detail, the one aspect of existence that none of us in this room can master. We can't control it. And that is death. (laughs) We are all going to die, but yet we confuse ourselves and deceive ourselves into thinking that I'm the master of my human nature, I'm the master of my own time, I'm the master of my own place as a furious attempt to convince ourselves that we're not gonna die, maybe. I love the way Stanley Hauerwas puts it. He says, we are suffering creatures whose suffering tempts us to be more than we are, which ensures that we will be less than we were created to be. We create hells for ourselves and for others, fueled by false hopes, anchored in the presumption of our significance. We are wounded by our sin, we are wounded by our illusions of control, and we are wounded by our inability to acknowledge the wounds our desperate loves inflict on ourselves and on others. All of this can be summed up in John Milton's famous phrase from Paradise Lost, my God, it is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. That's what we want. We want to reign, we want to be in control. Better to have knowledge and control and death than trust and relationship and life. We have two responses considering this. We forget our impending death and we seek to master and control what little bit we can, AKA we choose to reign in hell. Or we come to terms with death, maybe discover a different story, maybe come to terms with our truest humanity because every human dies, and maybe discover a deeper truth in the world's story and what it means to be a human being. Reign in hell, serve in heaven. Those are our options. How did Jesus deal with it? That's what we wanna ask, right? Considering all this, how did Jesus deal with the impulse to control? What did he do? How did he deal with with death? Does he know a deeper truth? Does he exhibit it? Does he know something we don't? For our passage today, we're gonna look at Matthew chapter three, verses 13 through 17. It's early on in Matthew's gospel, um, before he's even begun his ministry, as we'll see. And this is what we read. Then Jesus came from Galilee, to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, what are you doing? I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, He came up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Here we see the two responses in full effect. Reign in hell or serve in heaven. John's and Jesus's. Jesus comes to John and says, I want to be baptized. And John tries to prevent him, to deter him, and say, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? This is evidence that every impulse in our human nature seeks to master and control, even to control God's narrative. Uh, later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to talk about John the Baptist. And he's going to say some things. And he's going to say some really high praise. He's actually going to say that among those born of women, there's never arisen one greater than John the Baptist never one greater. And yet even John right here in this passage seeks to control God's story, seeks to control his place in the story, tries to hinder God by saying, no, 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 don't do it like that, God, Do, do it like this. No, 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 God, I need to be baptized by you and you come to be baptized by me. It shouldn't be this way, it should be that way. Do you seek to control your story and in so doing, hinder, deter God's work in it? Say, no, 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 God, it's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be like this. No, not that job, this one. No, not that person, this person. Or if you're not even sure God exists in this room, and as I'm sure there are many of you in here, you say, all right, God, if you did exist, you would come like that, not like this. You'd speak that way, not this way. John seeks to control Jesus, seeks to be the master of the story, and so he hinders God. I need to be baptized by you, and do you, do you come to me? That's a fair statement, guys. It's a really fair statement. John is right. He's telling the truth. Just a couple verses before this, uh, before Jesus shows up, he's talking to the crowd, and he's basically saying, hey, there's one who's gonna come after me who's far greater than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And so I'm just baptizing you with water, but he's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then Jesus shows up. But Jesus doesn't show up to baptize John, but to be baptized by him. Catch this friends. The first thing Jesus does is not try to control John, but to be controlled by John. In Matthew's gospel, this is the very first action in Jesus's ministry. And the first thing Jesus does is surrender himself into the hands of John. He abdicates control over his life and his ministry. And when we think about baptism, it's important that we understand what it represents. Uh, I know there are different traditions of how baptism happens. Uh, We do the full submersion. And the reason why is because um, baptism is not, Karl Barth says this, he goes, baptism is not so much being cleansed as it is being drowned. You're not scraping off a couple layers of dead skin. You're killing the old person. The person who seeks to be in control of their existence. And when you raise the person out of the water, they are now from the core of their existence saying, I am surrendered into relationship with God. So, Get this guys, the very first thing God in human flesh does to begin his ministry is to hand his flesh over to a human to symbolically kill it. The very first thing God in human flesh does is surrender control to one of us, you or me, who seek to be in control. He goes, I don't wanna be in control, not at first. God's message and ministry on the earth begins in death by human hands because God does not seek to control you, but to be controlled by you. That's what Jesus is enacting. Jesus is saying, hey, I don't wanna control you. In fact, the first thing I wanna do is hand myself over to you. You can do what you want. You can do as you please to his body. He has handed himself over into your bloody, greedy, untamed, appetited hands. It's your choice. Friends, the Christian story is absurd and insanely beautiful. Because you and me, we're like John. We want to reign in hell. We imagine that, that true power is true control, don't we? The one who has the power is the one in control. And we imagine that the essence of existence is to master death, right? We know that we are truly existing when there's not a chance that we could die. So if true power is true control and the essence of existence is mastery over death, then to be saved, salvation is to defeat death, right? And we have this, like every, every narrative in our world, whether religious or outside of it, you know, in, in our work environments, it's all, it's all a religious narrative. We all think this. So in our, in our work, right, we think that to be saved is to master ourselves, to master human nature, to master my own sense of time, and to master my own sense of place, that is until I die. Or even religious narratives, which is why I try to go to great lengths to explain that what we do here is not religion. Because even the religious narrative that thinks true power is true control and God has it, and God wants to save me by mastering death. We still think that to be saved is to come to God. And therefore he gives us, we're like, we do the things, we live a good life, we're a good boy or girl. And then he's like, okay, now you can master death. That's still the same narrative, but Jesus is God in the flesh. When we look at Jesus, the claim is that we are seeing the creator of all existence, in the flesh right before us. And the very first thing he does is he does not come to us or rather I should say, he does not make us come to him, but he comes to us. God does not make us come to him, but he comes to us. And we like John say, wait, I don't get this. I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? This is the question of one who sees Jesus correctly. You know, you're getting close to understanding the gospel when you ask this question. When you say, God, I don't get it. I need to be saved by you. And do you place your your life into my hands? I I need to do the things to earn your love. And do you surrender your body over to me? Allow my hands to kill you? To submerge you into the water? Why? What is this? It's the deeper truth of the world. See, we think uh, true power is true control, right? But what Jesus is demonstrating is that the opposite of control is surrender. And surrender feels a lot like death. And surrendering into a relationship, which means the opposite of control is love. He says, to fulfill all righteousness. When John asks him, why, why are you doing this? And Jesus goes, it's good for it to be like this right now. To fulfill all righteousness. The, the interesting thing about that word righteousness in the, in the Jewish sense is it means like right relationships. Right relationships, relationships with God, with self, with each other, with the earth. And Jesus, God in the flesh, is surrendering control of his existence to humans. For the sake of right relationship. For the sake of love. And we know this, right? Love is only possible when two parties are fully surrendered to one another, right? Anything else, and I'm trying to control. They're trying to control. It's only possible when each party dies to the other, places themselves into the other's hand and says, you can do what you want with me. Anna, my wife, I've hopefully every day wake up and place the fullness of my heart, soul, mind, strength, body into her hands, which means she has tremendous control over me. She can destroy me if she wants. As if she's doing the same to me, I can destroy her if I want, which is why love is so fragile and so vulnerable, but it's the essence of existence. You and me, we think true power is true control. Even, catch this, even God's control. We think true power is God's control over the world, but God's saying, I don't wanna control the world. I wanna love the world. Do y'all hear me? God's like, "I I don't wanna control the world. That's not what I'm about. I wanna love the world, which means for love to be real, that the first thing I'm gonna do is surrender myself into your hands. I'm gonna surrender myself to death. I'm gonna place myself into your hands and say, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. We think salvation is mastery over death, but Jesus is saying, no, salvation is not mastering death. Salvation is surrendering to it. Because when we surrender to death, as he does, we surrender to the deeper truth of love and relationship for true love cannot be coerced or controlled, even earned love, like religious love, John's form of love, which would say, hey, go to him and be baptized, even earned love. It cannot bring real relationship because true love, true friendship has to be freely chosen and freely surrendered into the hands of one another. I can't force Anna to love me. I can try to master her and control her and coerce her manipulate her, but I can't force her to love me. She has to freely choose to surrender herself to me. And, I, and she can't force me to love her. I have to freely choose to surrender myself into her hands. And we see this image, friends, and don't we? We know in our core that this image of love is the most powerful thing we've ever seen. We want this image to be true. And right here, God is going first, and he's saying, you don't need to come to me, I'm coming to you. Jesus is modeling the dynamics of true love, saying, hey, we know you're not gonna surrender to us, not first, that's okay, we'll go first. We'll surrender ourselves to relationship with you first. We'll die at your hands, so maybe one day you'll realize how deeply we love you, you'll trust us, and you'll die into our hands you'll surrender yourself into the relationship with us and therefore master death. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, they say. Well, little did we know that serving in heaven looks a lot like being a child of God. And how do we know all this? Because Jesus is not just God in the flesh, he is that. But as we say, he's God in the flesh, he's fully God, but he's also fully human. So Jesus embodies what it means to be a free and alive human. He's freely surrendered to God and to one another, which means Jesus truly loves God and loves us. As Harawa says, you and me, we're suffering creatures. And our suffering tempts us to be more than we are, AKA, tempts us to be in control, which ensures that we will be less than we were created to be, a human. But Jesus is not a suffering creature. Jesus is a complete human in perfect relationship with God. And so he does not attempt to be more than he is. Rather, he enacts precisely what he is, a child of God who is surrendered to God in relationship, as God is surrendered to him. Therefore, it's the relationship that keeps Jesus alive, not his control over anything. He does not seek the control. He surrenders himself freely and openly to everyone here in this room. God does not want to control you. He wants to love you, which is why this is utterly different than anything else the God of Jesus, what Jesus is saying, saying, you don't need to do things to come to me. I've already come to you and I've given myself into your hands. I've surrendered myself into your hands. Why? Because I love you, because the core of who God is, is love. And love is gonna be the only impulse left on that last day, which means it's gonna be an earth totally full of creatures surrendering to one another, creatures surrendering to God. Therefore, love will be like air that we breathe. And when Jesus surrenders to death and emerges out of the water, we're told the heavens are open, the spirit descends like a dove, and he hears the voice of the maker of the universe say, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. For the true human, the complete human abandons control and entrusts his or herself into the hands of the creator, entrusts his or her life to the creator and therefore becomes not a suffering creature anymore, but a son or daughter whom God loves and is able to freely enter and save. It is out of surrender to friendship with God, that we hear the voice of God. Or to put it another way, we see and hear the truth when we lay down our need to control it. You will see and hear the truth of what God feels about you when you surrender your need to control it. God doesn't want to control you. He wants to love you which means he's freely given himself to you. He's placed, Jesus has shown up and come to you and say, go ahead, baptize me. And we're like, what are you doing? I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. He goes, this is proper to do it this way first because then you'll know that the core of all that is, is not control, it's free love. And love requires surrender all the way down. You wanna know who Jesus is? He's the creator, (laughs) but he's not come to save you. He's not come to save you. He's come to surrender himself into your hands. You can do what you want. What will you do? Hopefully, hopefully, if you see that truly, if you see the depths of that love, you'll surrender yourself right back into his hands. Enter the relationship and discover true life. You're not the master of yourself. You're not the master of time. You're not the master of place. You're so much more than that. You're a child of God. And then maybe after that, you'll hear the words of the father. You'll hear the truth of the universe saying, this is my daughter, you are my son. You're the beloved one because you've entered the free relationship. With you, I am so well pleased. You don't do anything to earn it. You receive him and then you give yourself back to him. And it's incredible. i want to invite the band back up. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and pray with me. I want you to imagine something. And it might be a little strange. But I want you to imagine that you're, you're John. <laughs> that you're trying to do the best you can in life. You're trying to be the, the best sort of human that you think you're supposed to be. You're hoping that God will love you. You're waiting for God to save you or you're hoping your work will save you or, or family or friendships or whatever it is. And then you see Jesus approach. First century Jewish man and your heart starts beating because you know this is one who knows the secret of existence. He knows the true power that animates this earth. And as he gets near, your response to him is, Lord, I need to be saved by you. And his words to you in return are, I haven't come to save you. I've come to love you. Which means I'm not gonna control you. I'm gonna be controlled by you. The God of the universe is saying to his creation, his creatures, I'm not going to control you. I'm going to surrender myself into your control. You can do what you want with me. You can kill me. You can cast me aside. Or if you see the depths of my love for you, you can surrender control right back. And you and I will enter a relationship of freely chosen love. You'll encounter the love of God and the grace of God that refuses to let you go. The old person will die and the new person the new human will come shooting out of the water and you'll finally hear the truth of this entire universe. You'll hear the voice of your maker say to you, you are my son. You are my daughter. You're the beloved one. You, as you are today, you are the beloved one. Ah, with you I am so well pleased. What will you do? We're about to have a baptism in a couple minutes. And I'm sure there are people in this room right now who came here not preparing to be baptized but that is precisely what you need to do today. If you see the face of Jesus looking at you saying, I have not come to control you, but to be controlled by you, to give myself freely to you, will you give yourself freely to me? Then do it. Don't wait another moment. If you've been delaying or making excuses, do it today. Or if you're here and something is overcoming you, do it today. We have extra clothes. We'd love to celebrate with you so that you can join the free song of all the redeemed. And if you're here, and maybe that's not your step, and your step is simply this. to listen to the voice of God tell you what he wants you to lay down, ask you to lay it down, not because he's trying to control you or force you into anything, but because he's already laid all of himself down for you. He's already surrendered control. Would you join the relationship and surrender back? Jesus, speak to us right now. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.